verses 9 through 13. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word for us. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, uh, today's message is going to be given uh, by Pastor Young Yi, who is a good friend of mine, someone that I've known for years. And uh, he is married to a, a wonderful woman, uh, Hannah. And uh, Hannah actually grew up at Living Grace Ministry. I grew up at our church. Uh, and I've known her since she was like, this big. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she met this, this wonderful guy, Young, who uh, I've seen really blossom into a pastor and uh, as somebody that God is using in a mighty way. And, um, yeah, I mean, I honestly could just use this whole time to just rave about what God is doing in Young, but uh, I'm not going to do that because it, it's just been such a blessing to have him here this weekend and to hear what God is doing through him and, and, and the word that he's delivered. And so, yeah, it's such a joy for all of us to be able to share in this, this kind of, you know, we, symbolically this last uh, uh, service of the retreat and to hear um, Pastor Young speak. So without further ado, uh, yeah, let's give a warm welcome to Pastor Young. Well, thank you, Pastor Steve, for the introduction and also even just uh, sharing your pulpit um, with another preacher. So that's always a joy. So I appreciate that. Well, good morning, everyone. I guess it's morning. Is it morning? Yes, it's still morning. Good morning, everyone. Yes. Um, great to be with you guys as we wrap up the last part of the Lord's Prayer here together. Um, if you did not come on Friday and Saturday, no worries, um, because we are not necessarily just talking about the Lord's Prayer, uh, but we kind of sectioned it off um, into four different parts. And so we are, I, I actually mistyped there, it should be Matthew 6.13. Uh, we are in our last part uh, of the Lord's Prayer, right? uh, in verse 13. We just read it. Uh, I'd love to read it for us one more time. Um, just so that we have it really sealed into our brains. Um, Jesus says this in the book of Matthew. He says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are in Verse 13 there, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Ooh, temptation. We'll be talking a little bit about that. What does that mean? What evil are we supposed to be away from? But before we jump in, let me pray for us um, one more time. We're doing a lot of praying today. I love it. Prayer is good. Um, and we are in the Lord's Prayer as well. So, would you join me in praying? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this Sunday morning. Just pray, Father, that you would... Allow us to um, just come to you as we are, whether we are tired or exhausted, uh, whether we forgot to get our cup of coffee this morning um, and we need that, need that extra boost, um, or maybe we just need to take a nap while I'm talking. I don't know. Whatever it might be, Lord, 
Uh, we pray that, that your will would be done here, Lord. Pray, Father, for our hearts this morning, that as we dive into what you mean by temptation and the evils that we are to avoid per that temptation, uh, that you would enlighten our minds, that you will captivate our hearts, uh, not through me, Lord, but through your word and your word alone. Um, and so be with us in this way, Lord. May you be glorified. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So, um, I like to interact when I, uh, you know, with people when I talk. And I want to ask you guys a question. If someone is, I was going back and forth, honestly, last night. Like, man, should I do this? I'm just going to do it. Why not, right? Um, I want to ask you guys a question. If you are inconsistently consistent, are you consistent or are you inconsistent? <laughs> Think about it. Are you, if you're inconsistently consistent, are you consistent or are you inconsistent? Yes. I'm assuming all of you guys went to U of M, or most of you guys did, so this should be a breeze for you, right? Go green. <clears throat> Anyways. Um, <laughs> so, if you're inconsistent, consistent. Come on, just somebody. Are you consistent or are you inconsistent? Oh, all I'm hearing is consistent because it's the same word. You're inconsistent. Hadam says you're inconsistent. Who says inconsistent? Who says consistent? Okay, wow. It was like, I think like 60% of the room said inconsistent, and then like 5% said consistent, and then the rest just didn't answer. So, anyways, that's just a, that's just a fun little thing, all right? I want to do another quick poll, all right? So raise your hand if you agree with this question, okay? I'm going to give a couple of examples after I ask the question, so just hold off. Do you think, here's the question, do you think that only experts and scholars, experts and scholars, should have a voice on specific topics. For example, I'll give you two examples here. Should virologists and epidemiologists be the only people who have a qualified voice in society when it comes to COVID-19 and protocols? Or maybe someone working in public health or whatever, right? Should pastors and theologians be the only people to have a qualified voice in the church and in society when it comes to God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible. So let me go back to the original question. Over the, uh, oh, the, the original question is, do you think only experts and scholars should have a voice on specific topics? Who says yes? Oh, wow. Who says no? Again, most of you guys didn't answer. <laughs> okay, let me give you another, like, one second to think about this, all right? All right, one Mississippi. All right, let's try it again. All right, ready? Who thinks that only scholars and experts should have a voice on specific topics? Okay. Who says no? All right, majority. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Over the last few years, uh, in my opinion, and this is why I asked the question, we've seen a rise in a ton of online and armchair experts on a myriad of topics, okay? Um, for example, COVID-19, viruses in general, race, racism, Marxism, capitalism, right? The list goes on and on. And the greatest part of all of this, right, it, it, with, with people who became these armchair experts, they go toe-to-toe -to -toe with people who have degrees in these fields. It's, it's, it's like the most bizarre thing I've ever seen, right? 
it, it's that it's people who have maybe read blogs and articles, you know, follow certain podcasts or whatever, and then they're going toe to toe with people who have PhDs in like I don't know, like church history or whatever, right? Or virology or whatever, right? And with everyone being cooped up at home, you see this drama unfold, and all I can think of is that, uh, you know, the Michael Jackson meme where he's eating popcorn? He's like, oh, this is going to be good. That's all I keep thinking about, right? Because the drama is so good within this, right? And with everyone being cooped up at home, I think that a lot of people had time to jump really deep, right? Really, really deep into these different topics that have been on the forefront of society. But before you think that, uh, I'm condemning this type of behavior. Just know that I actually think it's great. I actually really do think it's great that people jump into different topics that they might not be uh, you know, uh, an expert in or whatever, right? But I do think that there's come some big warning labels uh, that come with uh, this idea, right? And if you look here, this is a, a chart that I actually recently heard about or, or effect called the Dunning-Kruger effect, okay? So on the y-axis, you have confidence, and on the x-axis, you have competence, right? And right at the beginning of competence is when people show the most amount of confidence. And that is what, in the Dunning-Kruger model, that we call the peak of Mount Stupid. And honestly, I think we saw a lot of people on the peak of Mount Stupid, right? They're high up. You know everything. You listen to that one Joe Rogan podcast, you know everything, <laughs> right? That was me. Because <laughs> the podcast that I listened to the most was Crime Junkie, right? True Crime. Who listens to True Crime here? Nobody? Anyone? Yes, True Crime? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, I know, I know, I'm a detective now. <laughs> like, FBI, call me. Like, I can, I can work for you. CIA, I got you, right? And so for me, it was crime junkie, right? And, and like my like my sense, like my nunchi, my sense for like you know crime and spotting, like yo, this guy seems kind of sketchy. I'm like shopping at a Meyer at like 10 p.m. or whatever, right? It's like all the, my senses are like super heightened, and I was on the peak of Mount Stupid. When you look at this graph, I think you can apply it to almost any type of study especially when people might become armchair experts, or even as some of you guys are in college, um, you guys are learning about your, you know, your degrees or your major, and you, you have your favorite class, and you're beginning to consume all this knowledge, and it's so much new and novel information uh, that you think, like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm beginning to get a really good grasp of this, right? Um, or in some cases, like the general public, people will read a few blog posts, and then they'll think that they have PhD accreditation, right? For example, <clears throat> a more serious example <clears throat> is, uh, so I, uh, my wife and I, we just got a dog. Uh, her name's Kona, she's a golden doodle, and she's like amazing, she's so beautiful, right? She's like three months old, four months old, whatever, she's just crazy at that age anyways. And there are times when like, she gets so like, hyped up that my wife and I are like, like Kona, like crate. And we like, throw her in the crate, right? Or like we ask her to go in the crate and we lock it up. Because she's just so crazy, right? She's just all up in your face and just biting everything. And <clears throat> if you don't know about me, I shared this, uh, I, I believe I shared this yesterday morning. Uh, for me, I personally fall under, in theologically, right? So study of God, theologically, I fall more under the Reformed tradition, right? Uh, and Reformed theology. And Reformed theology and the, the tradition of Reformed theology, a lot of it comes from 
we find everything that we know about God, and this might seem like, duh, but we find everything we know about God through the Word. And so a lot of Reformed theology is just study the Bible, study the Bible, study the Bible, study the Bible. And in our Reformed tradition and mainstream culture, we have a, state, a phase of that Reformed theology for people to fall into that. And it's called stage-cage Reformed. It's called stage-cage Reformed because it's better for people that are newly into Reformed theology to live in a cage and be away from society because you're going to hurt someone with all your arrogance. <laughs> and, and how arrogant you are because you think you know so much. You know everything about God now because you've studied so much of, of the Bible you know, so much of theology, and I lived in stage cage reformed from probably like 2015 to 2018, for sure. Right? It was better for me to have lived in a cage than to be out in society because I heard a lot of people thinking that I knew everything about God and what it meant to be a Christ follower. The temptation to be smart and wise in your own eyes is real. And therefore, the fall of being stupid, <laughs> quite bluntly put, is also real. Let me read the um, last part of the Lord's Prayer. Can I say stupid from the pulpit? Okay. <laughs> Just want to make sure. Let me read verse 13 for us one more time here, okay? Um, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think Jesus was instructing his people, you know, as he was instructing his people on how to pray, I think Jesus was teaching his people um, how to pray to God and to not climb all the way up to the peak of Mount Stupid, as we saw, because they would reach all sorts of different evils. Right? There are plenty of scholarly work on what this part of the Lord's Prayer means. Uh, and many people actually agree that temptation here in the Greek actually does not refer to the inner lust that many of us may have grown up reading this prayer thinking like, oh, it's talking about like sexual temptation. And I, I, it doesn't really make sense for that to be the context here. If you read, you know, chapter 5 and the verses following chapter 6 here, um, so you have to ask the question, what does Jesus mean here? If it's not sexual temptation or the inner lust, they also agree that, scholars agree that this word is better translated to trial, right? But I think a translation I found to actually be more accurate in my research and study of this and preparation of this uh, is actually if we translate this verse to let us not be brought into temptation by the devil that results in fall. And I was racking my brain on, like, what does that even mean? What, what, what does this mean that to not be brought into temptation by the devil that results in fall? And what could Jesus mean by that? And I began to read the passage around the Lord's Prayer. So chapter 5 and the verses that follow chapter 6 here, right? We're in chapter 6. And I'm quite convinced that what Jesus was talking about here was asking the Lord God, our Heavenly Father, right, to avoid the temptation of self-righteousness of holier-than-thouness in the people of God. He's saying, when you pray to God and say, and lead us not into temptation, Jesus is pushing his people to not have a faulty righteousness. 
Because if you actually recall, I summarized you know, Matthew 5 uh, over the weekend a little bit, the Beatitudes. It was Jesus' way of, I'm going to use the modern word, deconstructing. It was Jesus' way of deconstructing what the Jewish elites, religious elites, were teaching the Mosaic Law to be. The Mosaic Law, the 613 Jewish laws for the Jewish people, that if you were Jewish, if you identified as God's people, this is what your life was supposed to look like. But you had to follow it to perfection. And that perfection is tiring. And so Jesus in Matthew 5, he, he unravels the Mosaic Law. He unravels the lifestyle of the people of God. He deconstructs it and then he reconstructs it into what you ought to live like if you are the people of God. It's not that adultery is just sleeping with another man's wife. Adultery is looking at a woman lustfully in your heart. You see the deconstruction and then the reconstruction there? And so what Jesus is doing here, when it comes to verse 13, and as I was reading uh, chapter 5 and the verses that follow verse, uh, chapter 6, I think Jesus was going after self-righteousness and the temptation that may come to be self-righteous. For example, look at verse, I don't have it on the screen, but look at verse 16 if you have your Bibles, through 18, he talks about fasting. He says, and when you fast... This is literally three verses after the Lord's Prayer. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, meaning like they look extra tired. They don't, you know, whatever, with their faces, right? And they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. The reason why this is so important is because actually in this time of when they would have been fasting, it's not like, um, so for example, like a month ago, I went on this like social media fast or whatever because the school semester ended and I was tired and I needed a rest. But that was just me. I like, didn't do it with friends or whatever. That was just me. Very individualistic fasting. In Jesus' time, it would have been uncanny for that to happen. When they fasted, a whole community fasted. It's like if everyone in LGM fasted together and then like one person, like Pastor said, I'm going to pick on you. Pastor Steve's like, oh, I'm so hungry. It's like, duh, all of us are hungry. It's like this person... Jesus here is warning that person, don't show your face to be extra tired or you know, hungry or whatever because everyone else is fasting too. You just want to look more pious in front of people. And so Jesus here, I believe when he's talking about lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the fall, it is a fall that comes from self-righteousness. That's why passages and verses and sayings or whatever you want to say that Jesus says, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first is so critical to Jesus. The last in the kingdom of God, in God's economy, the last is first, and the first is last. Gives us a good taste of Jesus' heart on self-righteousness. I want to actually, in that light, bring us into an interaction that Jesus had with some of the Pharisees of his time. The te- these teachers of the law, they were geniuses. So like, I'm picking on them. A lot of preachers pick on the Pharisees. But quite honestly, I think the Pharisees, they would have ran circles of, of, around our modern-day you know, scholars and theologians. These guys were wicked smart, right? You have to give credit where it's deserved. The amount of schooling and the grit that they had to go to to, to get the title Pharisee is astounding. And yet, there is a reason why if someone calls you a Pharisee, you shouldn't say thank you. <laughs> Okay, like, if Pastor Steve was up here introducing me and was like, oh, Young's such a nice guy, but he's also a Pharisee, I would have been like, uh, what? Like, it's not a compliment, right? 
It's because the Pharisees in Jesus' eyes, they were the ones who were responsible to direct and guide the people of God, but they were also known as religious hypocrites. They practiced their elitism. They oppressed the people who needed the most help. And even though the law of God told them to do that, they did not. They knew in their minds, and yet their heart and their actions looked different. What I want to do is I want to dive real quick into an interaction between Jesus and <clears throat> some of these Pharisees. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 22, um, verse 35 through 36. And as you're flipping there, let me read this for us. <clears throat> One of the Pharisees says to Jesus, And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him, to test Jesus. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And again, for those who are not familiar with what the law means, it is the 613 Mosaic laws, okay? Right? These 613, this this is not like a, a, don't go 40 over 45 miles an hour, or like if you're under 21, you're not allowed to drink. It's not like those types of laws. This is like a type of law where it's like, if you, you know, um, I don't know, like eat, like uh, touch blood of a, a dead animal, then you have to go and like consecrate yourself and you have to go and do like the ceremony, cleansing and, and, and whatnot, right? These 613 Jewish laws, the purpose was to help identify God's standard for his people. It was a way to identify who the people of God were. I explained this last, uh, this, you know, yesterday, that if you were like a Canaanite or an Amorite or whateverite, right? Like, you would not follow these 613 laws. This was specifically for the Israelites. Um, And these 613 laws were also there, or were also what Jesus came to fulfill perfectly to prove that he was, in fact, the promised Savior, the Messiah, that the Jewish writings wrote about. And so, what I want you guys to see in this is that there is some sarcasm and wit in how these Pharisees talk to Jesus, right? They say, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? These guys never viewed Jesus as an official rabbi. And so the fact that one of these teachers of the law was like, rabbi. It's like, it's like if, if someone was trying to mock me, like, oh, Pastor Young, Pastor Young, right? Or whatever, right? They're mocking him. Their posture with that is that to be antagonizing towards Jesus. They didn't actually believe he, has, he was qualified to be a rabbi. And this is where the sarcasm is removed. And the question that we find so pointedly comes. The expert in the law asks what? Which command in the law is the greatest, right? The greatest meaning here um, is not like in some form of like list, right? But this greatest is, is what is uh, how everything, all the 612 laws, how is it summarized in this one law, right? It's not like what's at the tippy top. But if you were to summarize all the laws, what would it amount to? The Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to catch him slipping. Jesus says in verse 20 or verse 37 through 38, he said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important command. And what you might not recognize right away is that Jesus isn't just spewing some random words. Like, you might think, like, oh, yo, that's a good one, Jesus. 
Like, where'd you get that from? Like, that's a good one. He's not just ra- oh, spewing some random words here, right? Jesus is actually quoting what the Jewish people would have immediately understood as the Jewish Shema. In Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 4 through 5, it says this. This is Deuteronomy. This is like, we're in Matthew here. Deuteronomy's like all the way over here, right? So he's going like taking it way back, right? Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, he says, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is God talking, right? Um, lo- love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Does that sound familiar? Jesus' answer to what the greatest commandment is, to love the Lord your God. Jesus is saying, love the Lord your God. It encompasses the way that Christ postures himself towards his loving Father in which you and I, if you profess to be an apprentice of Christ, is to have. Our heart posture is to love the Lord your God, but with what? With all of your heart, the innermost center of one's being, right? A lot of times in the scriptures, when you read the heart, it's not just talking about your physical beating heart, but it is your innermost being of who you are. He says, love the Lord your God with all your soul, the place which acts as the life force that energizes who you are. He says to love the Lord your God with all your mind, your consciousness, that which pushes you to think rationally and logically, where it's not just a toss-up in the air and say that I love some pie-in-the-sky deity. It is an intentional, logical choice to love the Lord your God with all your mind. But did you notice two things here in Jesus' response? The expert in the law asks, again, what is the greatest command? And Jesus answers, not only by saying to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind is the greatest command. He also says that it is the most important command. All of this, when you read in the Greek, it is prote and tole, which means, again, the first command. It is the summation of all the laws into this command. And what we can say here is that the way that we love God actually illustrates how we understand what love is. The way we love God illustrates how we understand what love is. God is not only to be loved and nor does God love, but God is love itself. Does the way that you love God reflect? the love that he has for you, sacrificial and unwavering faithfulness, a love that changes you from the inside out. Did you notice that in the Shema, in, the, in Deuteronomy, it includes the word strength? But when you actually take a look here, when Jesus answers the expert in law, he answers with the word mind. He swapped it. Why did he do this? Uh, there's a lot of, you know, different takes on it. I, I personally think uh, that it holds significance in showing that Jesus' understanding of, of loving God does not require this external or even internal strength or might, but rather this would lend our abilities to loving God to fall within the inner dispositions of who we are. Okay? A lot of times we try to like fight for it, right? We try to like we try to like like muster up enough courage and strength to go and love God. But what Jesus I think is pointing at here is that a lot of loving God starts from the inside of who we are. It starts from the hearts. 
It starts from the mind. It starts from our souls. Which then would leave the idea of love and strength to fall on what Jesus says next. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, and all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Some of you guys um, have heard this preached on before, um, but let me explain to you um, what the proximity of loving God and loving people is like, okay? You, a lot of times we might think like loving God is like the most important command, and then loving your neighbor, right, as yourself is like tier two, but the gap is like here. But actually, if you take a deep look into the original text, what Jesus, the proximity between loving God and loving people is not like this, but it is loving God is here, and then loving your neighbor as yourself is like here. It's like nearly one in the same. To love your neighbor as yourself is not second in importance by a large margin, but they are almost, again, one in the same. Jesus is making a very clear statement to not only the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious hypocrites of the time, but to anyone else around them listening to the conversation. And that statement is this, that the fullness of humanity can be found when we love God with all of who we are and love our neighbor as ourselves. If you want to know what it's like to be human, if you want to know what it's to experience the fullness of humanity, of what it means to be human, it is found fully when we can love God and love people as ourselves. And this is the tension that we face, right? On one end of the spectrum, uh, we, we love people right, with blemishes and flaws and all, right? But once you bring up God, it's met with disdain. And on the other end, love God, you, you know, we, we can dive into his word, we can, you know, have worship nights, we can have quiet times, we can do all these different things, but then when you ask certain people, right, uh, about their views and postures towards communities like the LGBTQ plus community or whatever, right, it's met with disdain. There's this weird tension of, like, I'm really good at loving people or I'm really good at loving God, but it's really hard to do both, right? And Jesus says people on both ends of the spectrum fall short of the fullness of humanity that the Lord desires for his creation. And sometimes, y'all, most times, self-righteousness is the culprit of what inhibits us from loving people or loving God. So then, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, let's be very clear here. The scope of the word neighbor is all-encompassing. It's not just your floor mates. It's not just your roommates. It's not the, you know, you, you know, whoever that's just near to you, it's literally all people around you, right? It's the people that you're really close to, to the people who you are literally enemies with. Let me, let me say that one more time because that's very important. It's not just the people that you're close to that it's really easy to relate with. It's the people that you're also enemies with, right? And some people, as you might know, requires a little more strength to love, right? I know all of you guys just thought of that one person. <laughs> Their face just popped up, right, in your mind. But to love someone as yourself, what does that mean? It sounds like a nice spiritual pity saying nowadays, right? You put it, you put it on your, like, Instagram bio. I love all people as I love myself. It's like, okay, cool. But what does it actually mean? 
It means to love people despite the baggage that they may carry. Because isn't that what we would want from others? We talked a little bit about this. If you, I, I'm sorry if you were not at the you know, uh, retreat yesterday. We talk, what we did talk about was if you want to forgive other people, right? Uh, or, or, or if you seek forgiveness from someone else, you know what that feels like. You know what that craving is like to want to receive forgiveness from other people. It's the same thing with love. If you know exactly what it feels like to crave love from other people, isn't that what we would want from others, right? It's for them to love us when we need their love. You know, <clears throat> we, we also talked about on Friday just a lot of family of origin, how that builds up walls and whatnot, right? Deep down, we want to be seen and we want to be freed from our pains. Um, and I shared a lot about how, like, I have a good relationship with my dad now. Growing up, it was very difficult. Uh, a lot of, uh, now that I've processed a decent amount of it, like, a lot of emotional, a lot of verbal abuse, right? Um, and it was rough. Um, my dad had a lot of temper issues from when he was a kid that he never got resolved. Um, and so the way that he raised me was with a lot of anger. Um, and so that instilled in me, like, conflict resolution equals just, like, break things and, like, just, like, get angry, right? Um, and that, for me, comes out of a lot of defense. Like, anger, for me, comes out of when I feel defensive. Like, if someone's like, you did something wrong, instead of me saying, like, oh, you know what, you're right, it's like, let's fight. Like, I'm right, you're wrong, I, I'm not wrong. You're, you're wrong for saying that I'm wrong, and we're going to fight, right? And during COVID, uh, I struggled with this a lot, actually. Um, and, and I shared this a bit with, with you guys on Friday, and I'll share it again. My wife's here, even, and she, she knows very full well, uh, obviously, because uh, she's my wife, and we fought for, like, the first three years of our marriage, and we've only been married for, like, three and a half years. And um, praise God that, like, really just, you know, the last six months, to maybe even a year now, I think, um, our pa- one of our pastors at my church and his wife really helped us work through a lot of our issues, right? But during COVID, uh, we struggled a lot, a lot. And thankfully, we had a pair of friends who were married that lived um, kind of like above us in our apartment complex. And there was one time where, um, where my wife and I had a huge fight, right? Huge fight. And it was like two in the morning or whatever, and I just ran out of my apartment. I, I walked on campus. I lived right close to MSU at that time. And I took a walk for like an hour because I was just like, I was like going back and forth. Like, do I kill myself? Do I like, why am I so angry? Why am I stuck in this sin? And it's just so debilitating, right? And um, my wife went to go get our neighbors because they, they already knew how much we were fighting. Um, and they've been walking with us for a long time at that time. Um, and they waited for us. Like, they waited for me. Like, Frank and Tuan, uh, my, our two friends, they waited outside with my wife, uh, uh, you know, till like 3 in the morning or whatever, right? And Frank, my friend, he uh, constantly was there to point me to Christ. Constantly was there in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my, my frustration, my anger. He was always there to say, dude, you're okay. At the end of the day, there's a light at the end of the tunnel because there's hope in Christ to overcome your sin. Can we see each other and actually do something about the pains that, we, that other people might have? That is what it means to love God and to love people. There is a story about an interviewer asking an Amish man uh, if he was a Christian, and the Amish man's reply was, you'll have to ask my neighbor. <laughs> but isn't that so profound? Like, it, it, like, it, like let's, honestly, Right? If, if you were to ask 
like if someone were to ask your roommate or someone were to ask your friend or whoever, you know, what would they say about you? If they knew that you were an apprentice of Christ, what would they say about you? Can this be said of you, right? Whether inside the church or outside in our workplaces, our dorms, our classrooms, our clubs, whatever, right? Can people say that we are in fact apprentices of of Christ because of the way that we love them as Christ has loved us? It is a simple question and a question that we often get so wrong. (laughs) And the reason why we get it wrong It's because self-righteousness inhibits all of that. In fact, it's gotten to the point, I think, in mainstream culture, in America at least, where self-righteousness and being a follower of Christ is one and the same. (laughs) That's how much we screwed this up, guys. Right? But I'm not here to make you guys feel guilty. That's not my point. I hope you don't see that. My point is to highlight the reality of the water that we swim in. The moment you leave these doors, that is the water you swim in. That if you profess to be an apprentice of Christ, people may automatically equate you as a bigot or as someone who is self-righteous. Faulty piety, right? And it is our duty, in my opinion, to combat that, to unravel that lie, and to show people that Christ followers actually do love people just as much as we love God. Jesus concludes his answer to the Pharisees and the Sadducees by saying that all of the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. The word depend continues the theme of hanging, right? It it, it has this idea of like hanging something, like like kind of like like a Christmas ornament on a tree where the rest of the Jewish laws, right, they literally hang on these two commands, to love God and to love people. Meaning, if you get these two laws wrong, you get everything else wrong. Right? Yesterday, I was folding my, my button-up shirt that I was, I was wearing on Friday, and I was uh, buttoning it up to, uh, so I could fold it, but I got the buttons mis- mismatched from the very top. And so at the bottom, you had like one extra hole, and it's like, where's, where's the button for this one or whatever, or, or whatever, right? If you misbutton your shirt, it's like, off, right? That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. If you don't get these two things right, you get everything else off, right? If you're a code, if you, you know, if whoever's in computer science, if you get your like, little bit of code wrong, everything explodes, right? And you don't get that job or the leak code interview. My friend's doing that right now. It's really hard. It's like that, right? And this should give us in the room whoever identifies here today as a Christ follower, a brief moment of pause, right? Not guilt, pause. Do I love God and love people as Christ calls me to do? Jesus is speaking to, uh, we'll wrap up with this. Jesus is speaking to two groups of religious elite. Again, they are legitimate geniuses, right? These guys, they knew their stuff. They knew their theology. But Jesus gets at something that precedes and perhaps even transcends knowledge itself. And that is their heart posture. It is what is going on deep within their innermost being. 
He's saying that it doesn't matter how much you know about the law. He's saying it doesn't matter if you know all 613 laws by heart. It doesn't even matter if you practice the 613 laws to the T. But if your heart is not there to love the Lord your God, it does not matter at all. And if it doesn't move you to love your neighbor as you love yourself, then you really, really don't get it. Um, last year in May, uh, it took six long years for me um, and to finally graduate from seminary. And I have a degree from Hogwarts. <laughs> My degree from Moody Theological Seminary is literally called a Master of Divinity. Who thought of that? <laughs> like, like, honestly, like, Connie, you're in seminary, right? Pastor Steve, you went to seminary. You also have an MDiv, I believe, right? Uh, um, you, you're, a, you're a master of divine arts, as with I am. Who thought of that? You mastered divinity. <laughs> it is the most absurd thing. I spent six years learning how undivine I am. Okay? It's nice. It's really nice. Like, the other day, I was staring at my degree. I was like, man, I put a lot of, put a lot of work into this. And quite honestly, it doesn't mean jack if my heart is not there. Seriously. It does not matter if I even have a PhD in theology, the study of God. If I have a PhD in studying God and my heart is not there, it doesn't matter at all. Because if that degree leads me to self-righteousness and faulty piety... Oh my God, Lord, take that far away from me. If it doesn't move me to love God and to love people, it doesn't matter. When Jesus instructs us to pray to God to not lead us into the into temptation of self-righteousness, I believe it is so intentional because we cannot bring the kingdom of heaven into earth, onto earth, through the means of self-righteousness. It hurts people. It pushes them away. It creates religious hypocrites and bigots, all because it does not reflect the heart of Christ. The law of God, the knowledge of God, it should thrust the follower of Christ into a posture of humility, of service, and love toward God, and love toward the fellow man. Otherwise, if not, it will lead us to our fall if we do not check how humble or how self-righteous we are. I want to read to you guys one little quote for us, and then we'll wrap it up. It's from the good doctor, Tim Keller. This is what Tim Keller says. This is more on suffering, but there's a little bit of what we're talking about here, too. Tim Keller writes, Aristotle thought it was impossible that humans could be friends with God or with a God. Because friends have things in common and can say, you too? But in becoming human, God's first great act of friendship, he became like us, drawing near to us so that we could draw near to him. And since he humbled himself to get near us, only the humble and not the haughty can be his friends. In his second great act of friendship, he gave his life for us. And in our suffering, then we can look to Jesus 
and say, you too? Humility is a core value, a key virtue, whatever you want to call it, within the kingdom of heaven. Self-righteousness will lead to the downfall of the kingdom of heaven coming to earth because it pushes people away. It, it, it pushes people, it hurts people, and it does not reflect God's heart for his people. And so what I want to encourage you guys to do and what I want to do and to, to, to really pray for us and pray for uh, you guys here, my friends at LGM, is that the Lord would raise up apprentices of Christ. Yeah, we can, uh, if you guys want to come up. That the Lord would just raise up people who are humble. Apprentices of Christ who are humble. That say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I am made entirely righteous through him. Not self-righteous, but through Christ I am made right with God. And yet, I don't have it all figured out. I still wrestle with sin. I still wrestle with bad habits. I still wrestle with this. But the Lord gives me strength to work through it. And I pray that the Lord would raise that up. Those kind of apprentices here with the future. So would you uh, pray with me as I pray for you guys and ask the Lord's help in this for you guys. Lord, our Father in heaven, you are holy. You are truly the only righteous one and yet you are in our midst even now. You came down from heaven to earth through Jesus and you suffered a humiliating death. And I pray, Father, that as we look to the cross, that we would be overwhelmed with humility ourselves. But as we look at your resurrection, Lord, that we would be filled with hope as well. And that when we see humility and hope come hand in hand, that we can, that our humility would allow us to engage with people that don't know you, and that we can lead them to a hope in a resurrected and ascended Christ. And so help us, Lord, to fight the temptation of self-righteousness, of self-piety, because we do not want to fall in that way, Lord. Identify these things in our lives, and ultimately may you receive the glory. So we thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time. Thank you for my friends here at LGM. I pray this over them. I pray this over myself and everyone here in this room, that we will be humble apprentices of Christ. We pray this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.